Path to Hope ministry is for people who find themselves in a very broken place and are navigating through life alone. It's about drawing alongside someone who's broken and hurting. It's about recognizing, you know, that we're all broken and that being close to one another, um, being that person that Jesus with skin on can make a huge difference in someone's life. You know, we're just there to help, you know, guide someone along through the journey or the, the tough time that they have in their life or just be, you know, a companion to someone and just walk with them in whatever, you know, season they may be in their life. And it was really important to us that when somebody's reaching out for help, that there's a safe place that they can come to, that they can have support, that they can have somebody who will listen, somebody who will check in on them and be there for them and not try to fix their problem or judge their problem, but somebody that could actually just walk um, through the journey with them, somebody that can just, um, just, a person you know you don't have to have all the answers you don't have to you know be a band-aid fix for somebody it's more just listening to what they're going through and just being there for them and even if it means just sitting in silence for a little bit well we went through a structured 13 weeks of once a week training so we were in hours and hours of training on just various topics we would do these scenarios where we would talk about real things that could happen, real examples. What would you say? How would you come across? You might have Cindy tell that story. She, when we first started, she gave us kind of an analogy for what um, Path to Hope is, and it was that, you know, I'm in a boat traveling down the stream, which is just like my journey, and maybe I get kind of stuck on a sandbar. And that's when a Pastor Hope volunteer will get into the boat with them, help them get dislodged, and get them down the river a little bit further, and then the Pastor Hope volunteer gets out of the boat. Because what we're wanting to do is not have that person who's in a broken state rely on and depend so much on that volunteer, but that we would help them, equip them with the tools that they need to navigate through life and they can continue on it. They're still gonna have their baggage maybe, they're still gonna have their present situation and they still have a future. We all have these wonderful bright moments and these very dark moments and how do we get through those dark places and how do we continue to find that hope, ignite that hope in one another. When community gets involved, when the church body cares for one another, it shifts and changes something in a person's soul because it gives them the ability to say, maybe there is hope, maybe I can get through this, maybe there's things in me that I didn't realize I have that can help me walk through this, not avoid it, not stuff it down, but walk through it. You know, our ultimate goal is to just help as many people as possible and you know, just be closer with our congregation. We're not going to be a professional counselor, but we are going to be a mentor, a companion, somebody that can get you to the place that you can get the best help and the best care. And so I'm really excited about 
um, not only with the volunteers who are so ready to minister to people one-on-one, -on -one, but that this ministry will grow into something bigger than what we could possibly imagine. And I'm really excited to see where Jesus is going to take it. So here we go. Here we go. Hello, Christ community. Glad all of you are here. Uh, I'm so excited about the launch of Pass to Hope, which you just saw on that video. We're just launching this. Part of our <clears throat> For the City and Beyond vision is to be for those who are going through emotional brokenness, grief, anxiety, depression, things like that. And that, that's really what Pass to Hope is all about. So please be praying for these newly trained mentors and for that whole ministry. Uh, speaking of For the City and Beyond, next weekend is our two-year anniversary, and it's going to be so much fun to celebrate that occasion together in our services. As I've been reflecting upon these past two years, I am blown away by the stories and the things that God has done locally and globally through this vision. So I look forward to sharing some of those stories and pointing our hearts towards the things that are coming up in the year ahead. Okay, if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke 17, Luke chapter 17. So we survived chapter 16, right? All right, uh, money, divorce, and Hades. That was chapter 16, but we made it. Uh, not only did we make it, God actually spoke to our hearts in that chapter. He spoke to our hearts in that chapter. I, I think I received more positive emails from my message two weeks ago about divorce and remarriage than any message I've ever given in the last 27 years. I mean, God loves to speak to us even in the hard passages because this is his word. It's his word to us. So as we begin chapter 17, we need to realize that a transition occurs here. For the past couple chapters, Jesus has primarily been gearing his teaching toward the Pharisees, the religious leaders. But notice what happens in verse 1 of chapter 17. <clears throat> Jesus said to his disciples... So Jesus now turns and he speaks directly to his disciples, to those who are following him. Now, the word disciple is such an important word for us to understand and fully embrace because it accurately describes the kind of life that Jesus wants us to engage in. He is not interested in gathering a group of raving fans. He is not interested in, in organizing a group of people who believe he existed. No, what Jesus is interested in is mobilizing a group of disciples. He is calling us to a life of discipleship. But what does that mean, <clears throat> discipleship? Often people tend to define the word discipleship in a fairly narrow way. A discipleship class or a discipleship Bible study, or a one-on-one -on -one discipleship mentor, you know, relationship. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with any of those things, but by themselves, they don't define what discipleship is. Because the word disciple means learner. It's someone who is choosing to learn from and follow Jesus. Now, I think the most powerful definition and helpful definition of discipleship that I've, that I've heard, um, it, it was, was um, given by John Eldridge. Um, he defines discipleship in this way. Eldridge says that discipleship is learning to walk with Jesus. 
learning to walk with Jesus. I love that. I love that definition because it expands discipleship beyond this realm of one particular method or one particular practice or one particular tool and into this realm of every moment of every day, this every moment experience with Jesus, learning how to walk with him. Now that perspective is going to help frame up this passage that we're looking at today. In this passage, again, Jesus turns to his disciples and he describes some very specific aspects of what it means, of what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Now, in, in typical Jesus style, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, and that's where we as disciples are invited to wrestle with this passage and to try and discern what Jesus is saying to each one of us personally. So let's jump into this passage. Let me read the first three verses, Luke 17, the first, first three verses. We're going to go all the way to verse 10, but we'll look at the first three here initially. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than for you to cause any of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. So what exactly is Jesus warning against here? The word Jesus uses is the word stumble, causing someone to stumble. Now, this word was literally used in that day and age. It was used to describe the, 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 the traps that would be set for animals, the baited traps that would be set for animals. But what the biblical writers did is take that word, they took that word for, for traps, and they applied it spiritually to describe any area of temptation where we would be pulled toward sin. And once we give in to that sin, the trap is set. It wreaks havoc. And, and that's how Jesus is using the word stumbling block. It's something that causes someone to spiritually stumble. In other words, to sin. Now, Jesus acknowledges in verse one that there are all sorts of temptations and traps in this world. He says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. In other words, our world is filled with these things, whether it is greed or lust or pride or fear or addictions or compulsions or relational challenges or sexual immorality or religion. Religion can be a stumbling block. The Pharisees had caused lots of people to stumble because of their legalistic approach to a relationship with God. So Jesus acknowledges that there are lots, that the list of potential stumbling blocks is huge in terms of the sinfulness of our world and all the spiritual dangers that lurk around us. But that's not his primary concern in this passage. What he says is, even though this world is filled with traps and temptations like that, I don't want you to cause other people to fall into traps like that. I don't want you, as my disciples, I don't want you to cause someone else to stumble and engage in the destructiveness of sin. Now, Jesus specifically refers to little ones. Don't cause my little ones to stumble, which could literally refer to children, or it could refer to people who are young in their faith. Either way, he's describing people who are more vulnerable to these kinds of stumbling blocks. I mean, you can sense Jesus' protective heart here. 
This is his protective heart coming out. It breaks his heart when vulnerable ones are led astray. And especially when that happens due to a follower of his. When that happens, it's even more disturbing. The language Jesus uses is very vivid. He says it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. A millstone was a very heavy stone that was used to, grain, to grind grain or, or to press olives, well over 100 pounds. And so to have that tied around your neck and thrown into a body of water would not be good. Okay, now we need to understand here that Jesus often used hyperbole in his teaching. He did it all the time. In other words, he used exaggerated statements to add impact to his teaching. For instance, he, he once said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, right? He didn't mean that literally. Otherwise, you could just sin twice, and that would be it, okay? That's not what he was saying here. And in the same way, this, this millstone statement is not to be taken literally, but it is to be taken forcefully. Jesus is saying... Jesus is issuing, he's saying, he's, he's issuing a very strong warning to us to not be involved in causing a vulnerable believer in him to stumble, to not cause another person to be trapped by some sin that will result in horrible devastation in his or her life. I mean, how many, how many of us men here, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us men here can remember the person who introduced us to pornography? The person who opened that door in our lives. For me, it was a neighbor. Nice guy, but his dad had a stash of this stuff. So into my 11-year-old mind, mind got planted these images that unfortunately I can still remember. He caused me to stumble into that sin. I have met with people, men and women, who are in tears in my office. They're sharing their story about some uncle or some brother or some relative or someone in a position of trust who decided to just use them to satisfy his sexual urges. It may have happened 20 years ago, and it is as fresh and damaging in their hearts as if it happened yesterday. The, the, the destruction that was unleashed in their lives because of that incident involves deep shame and guilt and feeling dirty and afraid to tell anyone. And often when this person is in my office sharing their story, they're, they're battling, they're there because they're battling anxiety and depression. The, having difficulty in intimacy with relationships. There's a sense of despair all because of this incident or incidents of sexual abuse that they experienced years ago. I was horrified and heartbroken to read, I don't know if you read this, about a recent survey at Tulane University which revealed that 41% of their female undergraduate students had experienced sexual assault since enrolling at the school. 41%. Or what about the sex trafficking industry, which is often fueled by the porn industry, exploiting young women? God is not okay with this kind of stuff. He's not. 
the damage is horrendous and it is far-reaching. It is no wonder Jesus uses the imagery he does. A millstone around the neck for someone who intentionally causes this kind of damage upon another vulnerable human being. And Jesus says to us in verse 3, watch yourselves. We can't just say, oh, this is just about the Pharisees. This really doesn't apply to us. That's not what he says here. Watch yourselves. In other words, do not do this to other people. Do not cause damage and stumbling blocks for other people because of your behavior. So what are the ways, what are some of the ways that we may be causing a stumbling block to the vulnerable around us? And what may the Spirit be saying to us from this passage? Well, as I I was working on this message, the Holy Spirit reminded me of how my anger and my frustration towards my son Joshua's disobedience is creating a stumbling block for him. My anger is provoking him to anger. And we're told in Ephesians 6 that as parents, we are not to exasperate our children. And the flip side is just as harmful. Are you failing to discipline your children so that they are learning that it's okay to disobey? That is a huge stumbling block as well in terms of the kind of life that you are setting them up to experience when they, will, when they never learn how to submit to authority. Or what about the area of sexual purity? Are you constantly pushing the physical boundaries your girlfriend has told you that she has? You're causing her to sin. Are you flirting with someone who is married? You are causing that person to sin. Parents, are you doing all you can to protect your children from exposure to sexually explicit material in your home, on the internet, or through your cable provider? Or are you just naively assuming they're doing okay with their smartphone, which has access to anything and everything out on the web? See, are you causing them to stumble by your inactivity on this issue. Because it's a parent's job to protect, right? Or what about how we treat people at work? You know, maybe we have the Bible on our desk and we've got the scripture hangings and scriptures on the wall. Everyone knows we're a Christian. Do we treat people in a way that honors Christ? Or do we belittle people and, and treat them rudely? If so, we're a stumbling block. We're a stumbling block. I mean, in our worship planning meeting this past week, we were talking about this passage and, and, and had a fairly lively discussion about the various ways that this applies to our lives. And so if you're in an e-group um, and you're doing the, the teaching questions or whatever, you're going to have fun wrestling with this passage together. And after all, isn't that a part of discipleship? It's learning to walk with Jesus. And so Jesus wants us to honestly look at this issue in our lives. He does. He wants us to honestly look at this issue in our lives, this issue, and to repent of it if it's happening, to deal with it. That this is serious stuff. It's serious stuff. Now, thankfully, the cross of Jesus is big enough to forgive us of this. But we've got to take action and deal with it. Because now we know how God feels about it. Because we just read in his word. Now we know how he feels about it. 
Okay, so that's the first section that deals with this issue of us sinning against someone else by causing them to stumble. Well, now, Jesus, next in this passage, he addresses this, this issue of sin, but going the other direction. What if someone sins against us? That, too, is an issue of discipleship. Verse 3, if a brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, <clears throat> and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Okay, so what are we to do when someone sins against us? Ignore it. Uh, tell 10 of our closest friends what that person did to us. Harbor bitterness towards that person. No, no, no. Jesus says, if you're my disciple and someone sins against you, I want you to learn to deal with it. <laughs> I want you to learn to deal with it. So what does that mean? First, he, he tells us, so there are a few steps here. Here's, here's what it looks like to deal with it. First, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you are to rebuke them. This is a really strong word, and I think Jesus uses it to emphasize the importance of dealing immediately with the sin when it happens. Don't put it off. Don't avoid it. Once you've calmed down, go to the person. Speak the truth in love, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.15. This is so important. That combination is so important. Truth and love. Yes, speak the truth. Acknowledge the hurt. Don't minimize it. You know, don't excuse it. Acknowledge the her, but do so in a loving manner with gentleness. See, when, when we don't deal immediately or relatively quickly with these things, guess what? They start to fester in us. Bitterness starts to creep in. We start viewing this person differently. We start avoiding them at work or whatever. We start withdrawing from them. We perhaps tell other people about what they did to us and how bad they are and all that, which just kind of spreads this garbage. And Jesus says, I don't want that happening here. I want you to go to them and directly to them and share with them how they sinned against you and how it impacted you. Now, now please hear me. This is, a, this is a general guideline, but there may be circumstances where you don't feel safe going to this person. I mean, they just hurt you. You don't feel safe going to them. And so you may need the counsel of a trusted friend to kind of help you think through what does it look like? to face this person. Maybe you need someone to go with you. Maybe you need to write a letter and read that to them when you go there, or maybe you need to just send a letter or whatever. God will show you in that. Okay, so after going to the person, it's the first step. The next step Jesus mentions is repentance. Once we raise the issue with this person who sinned against us, we are to look for a repentant heart in them. Now, to repent means to acknowledge our sin, to face it, to, to own it, to not be defensive, to not make excuses. And we do this all the time, even in the way we apologize. You know, sometimes people will apologize. You ever heard of an apology like this? Or maybe we've, we've probably all used an apology like this. I'm sorry if I hurt you. If I just told you, you did hurt me. This isn't an if anymore. You hurt me. I just told you that you hurt me. See, don't excuse it. If you're on the side of the one who offended someone and they approach you, don't excuse it. 
Don't apologize in the sort of if way that basically communicates, oh, you're just too sensitive. If something like that hurt you, yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 that, that's not an apology. What an apology is owning it. Even if it wasn't your intention to hurt them, that doesn't change the fact that you did hurt this person. So all you need to say is, I am really sorry for the hurt I caused. You don't have to agree that it should have been hurtful. You, you hurt them. That was their experience from you. Just own it. I'm really sorry for the hurt I caused. Which leads to the third step Jesus mentions. Forgiveness. And if they repent, forgive them. Now to forgive is a choice we make. It is a choice to cancel this person's debt towards you. Now let me explain what that means. Because that's what the word literally means. It means to cancel a debt. And let me explain that spiritually. See, when, when a person sins against you, they owe you for that hurt, right? They owe you. So to forgive is to choose to cancel that debt. It is to choose to let go of our right to hold this against this other person. So, so forgiveness is not excusing the hurt. Oh, it's okay. It's not minimizing. Oh, it was really no big deal. It's not any of that. It's not ignoring it. No, no, no. In forgiving, we fully acknowledge the hurt and the pain. And then we bring it to the cross and we leave it there. We don't, we don't want to carry this offense any longer. Now, now, I know this seems so counterintuitive. Why would I cancel this debt? They hurt me, right? They, I want revenge. I want payback. I mean, honestly, let's all admit, initially, it feels good to not forgive because we feel like we're, we're, we're getting back at them. I mean, this is really the one option we have in our possession to retaliate in some way. If I can just hang on to this, I can sort of retaliate. But, but the reality is, our unforgiveness is harming us, not them. They've moved on. <laughs> They're not thinking about this offense anymore. They have moved on. We're the ones allowing them to keep hurting us over and over and over again as we hang on to and rehearse their offense against us. I often use this quote when talking about forgiveness. I love this quote. It says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free only to discover that the prisoner was you. You were the prisoner. See, we forgive not for the other person's sake, but for our sake, for our sake. Now, Jesus does say here, if they repent, forgive them. Now, does that mean that we don't have to forgive unless the person repents? Some of us are hoping that's what it says, okay? But here's the deal. I don't think so. I don't think so. For all the reasons that I just mentioned a moment ago, if, if we choose to hang on to unforgiveness, we are the ones who suffer. We're the ones who suffer. So I don't think was, that's what Jesus is saying here. What is he saying? Well, well, let me use an analogy that I think may help us try to get at the heart of what he's saying. When a sin is committed against someone else, both parties are affected by that, right? In, in fact, they both, they both are bound by that particular sin. So the offender is bound by guilt. The offended party is bound by hurt and unforgiveness. So imagine in your mind these two people in handcuffs 
They're both bound. Guilt, unforgiveness. They're bound, and there's a chain connecting them. That chain is this sin that occurred. Now, when the offended party, when the offended party chooses to forgive and let go of their right to retaliate, the chain that connects the two of them is cut, and the offended party's handcuffs come off. But the offender's handcuffs stay on. They are still bound by this sin. They may not notice, but God does. So in this passage, Jesus is dealing with complete forgiveness. The whole cycle, the ideal, this is the ideal. The whole cycle where both parties experience forgiveness and their handcuffs come off. That's God's ideal. And when that happens, often the relationship can be restored. When both of those things happen, the relationship can be restored often. But if the offender never repents, only half the forgiveness cycle is experienced. It helps free our heart, and so we need to do it. It helps free our heart, but the relationship is not reconciled. So Jesus is describing this whole cycle of forgiveness for both parties, experiencing forgiveness. Okay, so how often should we forgive someone? Well, Jesus says, verse four, even if they sin against you seven times a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, I I totally love the disciples' response to what Jesus just said. Verse five, the disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) I mean, that, that is such a great response. That is such an honest response. Notice they didn't say increase our love. No, they said increase our faith. Why? Why did they say that? Because here's why. Because when dealing with forgiveness of someone who hurt us, trust in God becomes a crucial element. See, the only way we can let go of the pain, the only way we can let go of our right to retaliate and actually speak blessing upon this person who hurt us, the only way we can do that is because we are trusting God to take care of this. We're trusting God to take care of this. We're releasing our hold and its hold on us. We're releasing that and we're placing that in God's hands to deal with this as he wishes to deal with it in his timing. Now we may be thinking, and some of us here, and I totally get this, you may be thinking that that is all fine and good, but I'm just telling you, I don't know if I can ever forgive this person for what they did to me. The hurt is too deep. I don't know if I can ever forgive this person. And I hear you. I hear you. But I want us to notice, please notice with me what Jesus says next. Verse six, he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now here is what is so fascinating. We may read this and think, oh, Jesus talked about that all the time in prayer, right? When Jesus talked about prayer, he would often say, hey, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this, what did he say? To this mountain, right? You can say to this mountain, move and it will move, right? That's what he, that's what he said about prayer. But in this context, in the context of forgiveness, he uses the analogy of a mulberry tree. Why a mulberry tree? The thing about a mulberry tree is that it has a very deep root structure. Very deep root structure. 
In fact, even if you dug it up, many of the roots would still survive. I read somewhere that mulberry trees can live for hundreds of years. So think about why Jesus may have used this analogy instead of a mountain. What does unforgiveness do in our lives? It goes underground, doesn't it? It starts to develop roots, the root of bitterness, the root of hatred. It can go down deep and start impacting every area of our lives. I was talking with a friend the other day who said that her mom, who got divorced like 20 years ago, she still harbors intense bitterness and hatred toward her ex. And that bitterness, even though she doesn't realize it, it spews forth in every area of her life. She is an angry, critical, negative person because it's rooted there. And what's rooted there, that's the fruit that comes out. It's just like a mulberry tree. See, those roots will go down deep and they will stay alive unless they are uprooted, not by our strength, but by forgiveness. See, all we need is a mustard seed of faith. All we need is a little seed of faith that says, God, this person hurt me so badly. They messed up my life, and I really want to hang on to this offense. But I choose to bring this offense to the cross. I choose to cancel this debt. I release this to you. Now, folks, that prayer may not seem like much, but it, I mean, it's just, it's just a mustard seed little prayer, right? But it has the power to uproot mulberry trees of bitterness in our lives and cast them into the sea. It's that powerful. It's that powerful. Just a mustard seed. That kind of faith uproots mulberry trees of bitterness and hatred. Now, what is it that enables us to ever forgive someone in this way? It is, again, it's not our willpower. No, it is Jesus. It is Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. He knows how painful sin can be. Did you ever think about that? Like, I can never sin this, you know, forgive this person what they did to me. Jesus knows how painful sin can be and how costly forgiveness is. He knows it personally. He hung on that cross because of offenses you and I committed. We were guilty. And yet we found forgiveness by coming to the cross. And that is the same place that we can find the power and the grace to forgive others who have hurt us. Now, there's one other, other aspect of discipleship, this teaching segment that Jesus expresses beginning in the next verse, verse 7. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? No, won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So what does this mean? 
What, what is Jesus saying here? And how does this connect with what he was just saying about forgiveness? Well, well Jesus seems to be putting this discipleship thing into proper perspective, sort of a reality check for us. See, Jesus has just challenged us and called us to these pretty significant responses. I mean, to not cause other people to stumble and to forgive people who hurt us. To follow Jesus in, this way, in these ways is not easy. So when we do so, when we do what he tells us to do, when we do obey him and follow him in these difficult ways, we may be tempted to start to think, I'm really something. I am really something, you know, you know, but I look how forgiving I am and then look how zealously I'm following Jesus. You know, I'm really getting the hang of this discipleship stuff. See, when that starts to happen, we stop walking with Jesus and we start walking ahead of him and we forget who we are in him. And who it is that's enabling us to do this stuff. Who it is that's actually transforming us. We, we forget that. Because it's really not about us at all, is it? We are just servants of his. He is the master. He is the teacher. He is Lord. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe him our lives. See, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And folks, it really gets to the heart of why we're following him. That's what this is about. Why we're following him. Why are you a disciple of Jesus? Why? Why are you a disciple of Jesus? Is it primarily for you and how you benefit? Or is it ultimately for him? In other words, let me ask a different way. Would you follow him no matter what he asks you to do? Not because of the end result, but just because of who he is? I vividly remember this issue surfacing frequently in my life, but surfacing in my life a few years ago when, when our church was experiencing this season of declining attendance, and I found myself getting increasingly discouraged and frustrated. And there were many conversations between God and I, me doing most of the talking, but, but conversations with God where I was desperately trying to figure out what is happening. What is happening? I was miserable. And in that place... In that place, I remember God frequently asking me, gently, but frequently asking me, Alan, who are you doing this for? You're saying you're serving me, but it feels like you're serving you. That you're using this church thing to somehow make yourself feel more successful. And then he would say this, how about we just go back to you just serving me and letting me take care of the rest. That sounds really good. <laughs> I had to admit, that sounded really good. Because I, I want to walk with Jesus, not ultimately for what I, what, what I receive from him, but because he is worthy of my faith and my love and my obedience. If you are a follower of Jesus, why are you following him? Why are you following him? Is it so that your life will be easier? Is it so your business will be successful? Is it so that your health will be good? Is it so that others will notice you? Or is it because Jesus is your master and Lord and you are eager to serve him no matter what? 
whether your business succeeds or fails, whether your health is great or not. Again, I love this imagery of learning to walk with Jesus. As disciples of Jesus, I mean, we want him more than anything else. We need him more than anything else, right? We need his help in, in, in not causing people around us to stumble. We need his help in that. And we need his help in being able to forgive those who hurt us. And we need his help in any and every area of our lives. But what we want and need more than anything is him. Right? We want him. He is our Lord. He is our master. We joyfully choose to serve and love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, no matter what the consequences. That's why we follow. That's why we follow as his disciples. Because he is Lord. He is master. And he deserves all that we offer to him. Let's pray together. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are using your word to speak to our hearts. And, and folks, I just want, friends, I want you just to, just to quiet your heart and I want to walk us through a prayer of response to him. Just walk us through, I'm going to walk us through this passage. And let's just be attentive to the Lord. So first, for all of us here, here's a question. It's about stumbling blocks. Just ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, would you reveal any area in my life? Each one of us is asking this quietly before the Lord. Holy Spirit, would you reveal any area in my life where I am causing someone to stumble, where I am causing someone to be caught in the trap of sin? And let's just wait on the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit brings something to mind, maybe it's with regard to your children. Maybe it's with regard to another relationship with your girlfriend or, or someone. Maybe it's regard to people at work, with regard to people at work. This is serious stuff in God's eyes. And so as the Lord is bringing, if he's bringing something to mind, I just want to encourage you, bring it to the cross. Just repent of it, admit it and ask for the Lord Jesus' help to not do that anymore. God, there are so many places you tell us in your words, so many places people can get caught up in sin, but God, we don't want to be a part of causing someone else to stumble. So would you help us as parents protect our children? Would you help us as friends protect our friendships? 
Help us honor people around us, Lord, at work and other neighborhoods. Lord, we just pray we would not cause anyone to stumble. Help us, Lord. Now, let's just transition. You may be still in the first place, and that's totally fine. You can just kind of hang out there with Jesus. But I want to lead us just in the second part here. And again, let's just ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, is there anyone that I'm harboring unforgiveness towards? Anyone that I haven't forgiven? Now, if the Lord brings someone to mind, I I invite you, one, you can just right now, if you feel like you can't just bring it to the cross and leave it there, just own it. It hurt me. I'm just bringing it to you. If you ch- you can choose to cancel that debt right now, for others of you, you may be like, man, I, I gotta I gotta work through this a little bit. I I need to process. This. I can't do it in just the spur of the moment here. I totally get that. This is not something to be hurried, but it is something to do. It's something really important. And so, I just want to pray right now, Lord that if you've brought to our mind someone to forgive, I pray for grace right now for those who are able just to choose to forgive. And for others here who just feel like, man, they need, they need more time, they need more space, that totally get it. I just pray, Lord, they would deal with this, that they would not just leave and that today and leave this service and then not think about it, Lord, that, that you would not let us just leave this undone. Maybe later today we would, in prayer, go to you and choose, make this choice to forgive and bring this to the cross. So I just pray for freedom to do that and the courage to do that. And I also pray, Lord, if we are on the other side of that, if someone comes to us or we're aware that we've offended someone, we would have the courage to repent and to own it with an appropriate apology, a heartfelt apology that doesn't dismiss or minimize, but it owns the hurt we caused. So I pray for that, for handcuffs to be released all over on both sides of this, Lord, through forgiveness, through repentance. I just pray for freedom and healing of hearts because of your word being sown. And then finally, this this third question, just for all of us to process. You may still be in the forgiveness thing. That's okay. Just stay there. But for those of you who are who heart, whose hearts are open, here's the third question Jesus is asking: It's why are you following me? Why are you following me? And Lord, we just acknowledge that often our motives may not, they may be kind of self-serving sometimes. We just acknowledge that, but Lord, we want to be where this, this passage tells us to be. We want to be the place where we're following you because you're Lord and you're master and we're not. And we choose to follow you and obey you no matter what the cost because you're worthy of that. 
you're worthy of that. We are your servants. We are your children. You are worthy of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray there's a lot happening here spiritually in our hearts, Lord. And I, I just pray you would continue this work as we spend time meditating on thinking about this passage this coming week and, and, and we go where you want us to go in this, you would continue to speak to us. And for e-groups who are discussing this, you would be speaking to us as a church and continue to grow us in this, this thing called discipleship where we're learning to walk with you. Yeah, we love you. We know we don't follow you very well a lot of times. We pray, we just need you to help us in all of these areas and you're so worth that. We love you. We love you, God. So we want to take this moment, these moments here and respond just to kind of create a space not only for prayer but also for worship. You may want to continue, you may want to continue in prayer or maybe you're working through some forgiveness thing. Totally cool. Go for it. Do that. For the rest of us, I encourage us to stand and, and let's let the Lord speak to us and continue to speak to us as we worship him because he's worthy of this. So Lord Jesus, set us free as we worship you. We love you, God. We love you, God. So please feel free to stand as we worship the Lord.